Amen. Thanks, Pete. Praise God. It's great to be here today. Uh, thanks to those of you who've come. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to be here. Um, this is what we do. This is what church is. We gather together and we do it to glorify God. And in so doing, he strengthens us. You know, church is important and um, I believe is one of the means by which God chooses to strengthen his children. And so I appreciate that you value it also. And I appreciate those of you watching at home as well have placed a value on being here today, though not in person, still receiving God's will for you today. So it's good to be here. It is good to be here. Oh, there we go. That's me back again. Um, so today we're going to be continuing our study in First John. So if you want to get your Bibles out and open it up to First John, we're in chapter 5. And we're actually finishing off our study of the first epistle of John, which began way back, I think, when we were still meeting in a field. Uh, it seems so long ago now. But today we bring to completion what we started on Lower Green back at the end of summer last year. It was just feels so, so long away. And, but what I do love so much about HCC and what I, I really do see God doing is that we will always be the church that started in a field. It's just written into our DNA and who we are now. Um, and I love that. And I don't want that to change. And what God is doing may not be flashy. You know, it won't be the flashy lights that attract people. But what God is doing is real it's real and it's authentic and it's humble it's unassuming but the lord is truly doing something and so i'm excited by that and i i hope you are too is to be part of what god is doing and know that you're part of it so this is encouraging to be able to finish our second series of hcc we've done psalm one now we're completing first john so let's read together. Uh, I'm going to read firstly from the ESV translation. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. I said to Pete and Bucky the other night, I said, First John is just such a heavy metal book. You know, like, it's so heavy metal. It just, fit, what a brutal way to finish a letter. You imagine your pastor writing to you and just saying, by the way, dear child, keep yourself from idols. Just low-key way to finish a letter, isn't it? Not. I love it. Uh, I, it the, the letter begins with a bang, you know, that which we have heard, that proof which we've seen. You know, and we now declare to you, we're ending it with this kind of like, wow, this, this blast. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Wow. Um, so we're going to be spending some time looking at what that means today. I want to spend the majority of my time expounding verse 21 because I think there's actually a lot in there for us today to encourage us. But before I get there, I can't, I can't move past the fact that there are several really, really core Christian doctrines that get expounded 
in verse 19 and 20. And these need our attention. Brothers and sisters, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Now, I know um, sometimes it's not the most exciting thing to think about. We want to see the spirit break out. We want to see revival. But let me tell you, those things are not going to happen unless we understand who God is. Unless we know who God is and who we are, we won't know whether revival's happening or not. That's the truth of it. We won't be able to discern it because we don't truly know who God is and what his spirit is like and what it will be like when he moves. And we want revival, amen? I want revival. But I understand that the Bible presents to us truth about who God is and truth about who we are. And those two things, when we know them, will result in us behaving in a way that I believe that revival becomes something that we want and something we desire and we pray for. Um, I do not believe that we can manufacture revival. I do not believe it's something that we ought to be looking to create. I do not believe we can just click our fingers and have revival. I think these things are false teachings and they speak of pragmatism and they are not Christian. That said, I do believe revival is something we want to desire. We want to see God come and refresh and refill his church. We want to see the Holy Spirit poured out in the body of Christ, do we not? Amen. But we don't want to trip ourselves up into thinking that that is something that we can simply have whenever we please and turn the tap on and off again. It's not possible. Um, we need God. And doctrine is important in that. I want to have a spirit-filled church but also a church that loves the word. Word and spirit together. Word and spirit together. And knowing scripture, brothers and sisters, it, it is both knowing the scriptures that pertain to us, knowing what God says about us. These, this is important, isn't it? It's really important to know what God says about you. But it is more important to know what scripture says about God. It is far more important when reading scripture to ask the question, not firstly, what does this say about me, but what does this say about him? What does this say about God? What does this say about Jesus? If we start with him, everything else will fall into place. I can't remember who, who used this analogy, somebody cleverer than me, but they said if we ask the question first of scripture, what does this say about God? It's like getting the top button of the shirt done first. Once we've got the top button done, it's easier to get every other button buttoned up in order, isn't it? But if we start down here with what does this say about me, we can get into a real pickle and we can end up with our shirt with weird little gaps in it and we can end up looking a bit silly. So let's start with God. What does the Bible teach us about him? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory, the cry of the reformers. We need a reformation today. We need a fresh reformation in the church. We don't just need revival, we need a reformation. We need a reformation. The turmoil that's in the world today, and the world is in turmoil, and it's rapidly moving in a very scary direction. The world needs true Christian preaching and true Christian doctrine. It does not need it does not need a counterfeit church. It does not need worldly preaching that preaches more about you than about God. 
It needs true Christian preaching. It needs men and women who will do what Luther did 500 years ago and say, here I stand. Here I still stand. I can do no other. Who will declare the full sovereignty of God over all the affairs of man. Who will declare that grace alone is that by which we'll be saved, not of our own works. We need a reformation today. We need doctrine, brothers and sisters, in the charismatic church, and that we are. That we are. I long to see the Spirit moving more powerfully in our body, but we are also a Bible-believing church. Doctrine is what we need, and we need to cleave to it, and we need to love. We need to love it. We need to believe that it's for us and that it will bless us, that it will encourage us. Sometimes in the church, I see all too often Christians running for a fresh prophetic word before they'll go to their Bible. Before they'll open up the scriptures and read the difficult verses in the first chapter of Ephesians about predestination. They'll say, oh, it's not for me. That's for theologians. Just tell me who I am, God. No. You can't skip past that and go straight to you. We, we need doctrine. We need the Bible and the Spirit. Amen? Hallelujah. So I'm not going to skip through the doctrines that are illuminated in 19 and 20 because they are important for us. If we read verse 19, in the Greek, literally, uh, I'll read it for you, a translation directly from there. It says, and... <clears throat> We know that the Son of God has come and has given to us understanding in order that we may know the truth. And we are in the truth. I'm sorry, I'm going to skip back a verse because I've gone to 20 before I've gone to 19. Let me go back to 19. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the evil one. Listen to that again. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the evil one or the ESV translates it lies in the power of the evil one. That's definitely the sense of what's being said there. So what, what is this? What's verse 19 telling us? Well, it's telling us this. There are only two types of people in the world today. There are only two types of people that have ever been in this world, and that is people who are under the power of the evil one, that is Satan. And then secondly, there are those who have been born of God. They are of God. Those are the only two types of people around today. There's nobody who's neutral. The Bible never tells us that anyone is neutral. The Bible never preaches to us that there are just simply nice people walking around, and they're neither predisposed to the devil nor predisposed to God. They are simply just lovely people. But that's our experience, isn't it? That truly is our experience. That there are seemingly just really nice people that don't believe in God. Well, how can it, the Bible tell us that they lie in the power of the evil one? Goodness me. But that's truly what the Bible says. Paints in black and white. There's no such thing as a neutral person. The whole world and that is everybody that's every single person that's every institution that's every level of government that's every level of education lies in the power of the evil one so what are we seeing here what we're seeing here is the doctrine of the universality say that with me universality 
we're seeing the doctrine of the universality of sin. The universality of sin and the depravity of man. People say to me that these doctrines about the depravity of man, the inability of mankind to make himself right with God, all those doctrines just came with John Calvin and the 16th century reformers. No, they didn't. They came with your Bible. They came from Christ. They came from the, apost the apostolic witness from Scripture. The whole world lies in the evil one. And the language here should remind us of Psalm 1. I remember Dean preaching on this. There's this idea of the, the, the standing uh, and then the, the sitting, isn't there? The, 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 the unrighteous man, if we remember back to Psalm 1, there's a progression in the way, sit, um, and then stands in the way, and then sits in the seat of scoffers, right? This word lying is the next progression on from that. It's literally a word, kimai, is used to describe something. The whole world is sleeping in the power of the devil. When you're sleeping in something, it means you don't know that you're in that thing. You're unawares. You're quite comfortable, but you're unaware that you're under the power of Satan. The world truly is unaware of its peril, isn't it? Even now, when there's a virus raging across the planet, and we're seeing people having to face up to their own finitude that they're going to die, and that death may come imminently even then, we see the world unaware of its peril, unaware of the fact that this world is not all there is. There is a progression, and maybe if they die, they're not in Christ. They may spend eternity in hell. Is there alarm about this fact? No. Should there be? Yes. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. They're comfortable where they are. They're unaware of the peril that they're in. Isn't that true? Isn't that how we see it? We see this in Romans 3 as well, don't we? What then? Are we Jews any better off than the heathen? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Listen to this. No one seeks for God. There's no such thing as a heathen who's seeking for God. They seek for idols, but not for the true God of their own means. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. Goodness me. Together they have become worthless. Scary language. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, sometimes I think if I wanted to just ruin a particular church's theology, I should just stand up and read the Bible to them. I should just stand up and read the Bible. There are many, sadly, there are many churches in the West where if I were to stand up and read a passage from Romans, I would be ushered out of the building. It would be inappropriate. Please don't read that verse. We're here to hear about the love of God. We don't want to know that. But this is the Word of God for us today as a church, is it not? Is it not? Should we be scared of what God has to say about us? 
No. This is the truth, ladies and gentlemen. I long for a church that is immersed in the truth of God and isn't trying to run from the Bible. Oh God, if ministers would only preach the Word instead of worrying about what people will think if they do, how much holier the church would be. How much more would there be a real move of the Spirit? I'm not talking about the counterfeit moves of God where you have to drum up emotion and you have to say certain things and shout certain words and manipulate and create strange fire. I'm talking about a real move of God. The Spirit of God rides in on the Word of God. Hallelujah. These things are true. The second great doctrine that we see in these two verses, because John packs it in, is in verse 20. I'll read from the, um, the NASB at this, uh, sorry, the ESV at this point. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us, something's being given to us, has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. He is the true God. He is the true God and eternal life. The theologian Lorraine Botner found that there are over 10 times in the scripture, 10 or more in fact, when Jesus is given the name God, directly given the name God. So people that say there's nowhere in the Bible where it really clearly tells us that Jesus is God. No, no, no. Uh, Lorraine Botner says there are more than 10. We see this in John 1.1, 1, 1, John uh, 1, 18, 20, 28, where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. These are unfortunate verses for the cultists and for the Muslims, but they're there. They're there. More than 10 times Jesus is given the name God. And no less significant is the phenomenon recognized by scholars that Jesus is identified by the New Testament writers as the Lord, Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the name reserved only for God. Jesus is given that, t- that name in the New Testament multiple times. He's referred to as Yahweh. Yahweh. And this verse right here is one of the clearest proofs that Jesus is God in the whole New Testament. If you've got a New King James or an NASB, the reading is maybe slightly more ambiguous. I think in the NASB, it's translated like this. It says, and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ, this is the true God. So it's slightly less obvious that this is talking about Jesus. But in the Greek, it's, it's literally, um, we are in his son, Jesus Christ, this one. This one, Jesus Christ, that's the immediate antecedent of that word, this. This one is the true God and life eternal. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's not simply a moral teacher. And this is one of the clearest verses proving that. In fact, the the German theologian Schnackenberg, what a name. Schnackenberg. I wonder if he liked a schnack. He says this, For here the full identity of Jesus with God is recognized without reserve. This seems to occur intentionally at the end of the letter. 
as the climax of the triumphant expression of faith. It is hardly an accident that it's precisely at the beginning and the end of the Gospel of John by the same author that the light of Jesus' divinity shines forth most fully. The climactic Christological confession becomes visible here in all its clarity. Wow. Now we move on to verse 21. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Now personally, I think the ESV translation is a bit weak here. It says, little children, keep yourself from idols in its translation of the Greek word phylaxete. Uh, okay? Now the noun version of that word phylaxete is literally the word used for a guard. So if you've got a prison guard, uh, that's a phylaxe in Greek. Okay? So we're talking about language which is almost military, it's combat language. You, you're talking about guarding. So I think the translation is better, little children, guard yourself from idols, which you'll have in the NASB. It's also that verb there, phylaxate, it's, it's a command. It's a command, it's an imperative, okay? Do this, guard yourself, okay? Guard yourself, that means you you are the one responsible for doing this. You are to personally make sure that you guard yourself. No one else is going to do it for you. This isn't something that happens just you know, by default as a Christian that you're suddenly supernaturally just guarded from these things. Of course, there's an element of truth to that because the Holy Spirit works these things and accomplishes them in your life. But still, you are to apply your will to guard yourself against idols. The term guard also, if you're to guard yourself for something, what does that say? If I'm to guard myself against something, what does that indicate? Well, it indicates that there is a threat, does it not? If I tell you to guard yourself against something, that means that there is something that is a genuine threat to you that you ought to be guarded against. So what's being said is that idolatry is a genuine threat even to believers, that we must guard against. Now the truth is, unless we really understand that idolatry is a threat to us, we're very unlikely to guard ourselves against it. Let me explain. If I say to you, if my kids were here, and I got my youngest, Tilly, who's, I always forget, I think she's four. She tells me off because I always think she's five. She's four. If I, if I said, listen, Garth, watch yourself. Guard yourself. And you say, well, what against? I say, against Tilly. Be careful, right? The likelihood is <laughs> Garth is unlikely to go and get himself a shield, is he? he he's going to laugh and he's going to oh, play along. But he, he's not all that likely to take me too seriously about the genuine threat to his well-being from my, my littlest. Although she, she can be a bit of a threat sometimes. Especially if you're lying unawares on the sofa and she takes a jump. I mean, that's, that's next level. But the, the amount that you guard yourself is determined by how much you genuinely think you're under threat from something, isn't it? Would that be fair to say? So my question is this. Do you consider yourself to be really vulnerable to idolatry? Do you think that idolatry is a potential threat to you? Now, if you feel complacent, you feel that, of course not, it's not a threat to me. It's not a temptation to me. Well, it's likely that this really is an issue for you. 
It's likely, if you don't think it's an issue, that it really is. It's likely that the enemy, so to speak, is already within the walls of your defenses if you don't think you're personally at risk of idolatry. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. You just don't hear this stuff preached in other churches, do you? I'm not saying this is great and I'm wonderful. I'm just saying this is what your Bible says. And I think Calvin is right. Why? Well, we find, don't we, also in Scripture, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it or who can know it? We find Jesus talking to the Pharisees about what truly defiles. The Pharisees would say, you're defiling yourself by not washing properly, by not eating properly. Jesus said, no, 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 what defiles you is what comes out from your heart. Your heart is full of sin. And even for the born-again believer, that wrestle between flesh and spirit doesn't go away, does it? Because we're on a journey of being sanctified. We're not suddenly made perfect and holy the minute we get saved. I'm, I mean, maybe I'm different from all of you lot, but I still struggle with sin. I still find my heart reaching for stuff that I know is not good for it. Because I'm not fully sanctified yet. I'm on a journey. So you have a weakness. The first thing you need to do in being a, a better guard against idolatry is recognizing that you personally are vulnerable and your heart, when it is led by a fleshly mind, is apt to take idols for itself. Or at least is vulnerable to doing that. Would, would that be fair to say? Right? Would that be fair to say? So it's identifying that weakness in yourself and acknowledging that weakness. I think that's what makes a strong fighter. I think that's about the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. If anybody watches UFC, okay? If you think about, let's say, a Conor McGregor. Now, if you watch any UFC, before you laugh, let me, what is a big UFC fan? He'll know what I'm talking about. Conor McGregor is great toe-to-toe. Right? He's one of the best pound-for-pound punches in the UFC. But if you get him on the ground, he's less effective. He's less effective. So what he tries to do is not ever get grounded. Keep standing and keep going toe-to-toe. He wants his enemy to fight him on his strength because he knows his weakness. Being a good fighter and being a good guard of your heart is as much about knowing your weaknesses as knowing your strengths. Amen? A fighter who doesn't know their weaknesses is vulnerable and can be taken down by a lesser fighter because they're complacent, they're overconfident. So Christians, know your weaknesses. Know that your heart is still in a journey of being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And that work will be completed. He will see to it because it's to His glory. But in that moment, there's also a part where the Spirit says to you, but but this is also to be your responsibility. You are to also guard your heart. You are to also guard against idolatry. In understanding my weaknesses, that my heart's still vulnerable, I will be a better guard against these things and against these temptations. So how do I compensate for that weakness? Well, I'll leave it to you in the spirit, but but I would say a good place to start 
for compensating for that weakness in your heart and recognizing the sinfulness of your heart, recognizing what the scripture says, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and you live in that world, well, a good place to start would probably be to strengthen my heart, wouldn't it? Strengthen my heart, fortify my heart in prayer. That's why in this church, we're really passionate about seeing God use us in prayer. And I think Pete and Pip are going to share later on about something we'll be doing in a few weeks' time to tie in with that. But every week, we want to pray together. We pray Sunday evenings. We pray Monday mornings every week. Then we have personal time in prayer, don't we? I would say, I'd want to fortify my heart in prayer. I'd want to fortify my heart in prayer. I'd want to be involved in corporate prayer, definitely. I'd probably want to find one or two brothers who I will seek out and ask them to pray for me and maybe confide in them some of the things I'm struggling with. I'd also want to do what we talked about in Mark the other week, which is solitary prayer. I'd want to be seeking the Lord on my own to fortify my defenses more. I'd certainly want to also be studying Scripture, as we talked about earlier. I'd want to be standing on the truth. So now that we've identified that we have a weakness and that there is such a threat to us as idolatry. Now we need to identify the enemy. Now we must identify the threat so that we know what we're looking out for. You know, that's only, it's only half the battle to know we've got a weakness, isn't it? As I say, Conor McGregor may know that his groundwork isn't that good. That's one part of it. But that knowledge alone isn't going to win him a fight. The fight comes when an enemy's in the ring. And then it's in that moment that he needs to actually play out his strategy to win, okay? So we need to be able to identify the enemy. We need to be able to identify what is John talking about when he says, guard yourself from idols. What are we looking out for? At the very basic level, at the very basis level, an idol is simply this. It's just a false god. An idol is a false god. An idol is anything that assumes the place of God within your life. It's anything that sits on the throne of your heart that even God has to answer to. That's an idol. Now in the first century where John was writing, there was such a thing as idol worship. So that would be the worship of graven images or literally carved statues. There were such things as idols, carved statues that people would worship. I mean, obviously, these days, you, you don't find many carved idols, not many, but, but some. You don't find an awful lot at your local newsagents, do you? If you walk out down Codsell, you, you're not likely to find an idol vendor, are you? Your garden centers, you'll see a few. Your fat Buddhas everywhere, right? But not in your average high street. Okay, And even if you do buy a fat Buddha, you're unlikely to go and worship it once a week, are you? Right? The practice of idol worship isn't what it was in the first century. But is that what John's talking about specifically here in 1 John 5? Because if he is talking about the practice of worshipping a statue or a graven image, he hasn't really prepared us super well in the context, has he? And there are some commentators that think he is talking about that practice of worshipping a statue. Some great commentators, but there are many more who think that actually what he's talking about in terms of idolatry 
is the idolatry of the false teachers that he's writing about and warning against in the whole of the first letter. The secessionists, they're teaching about Jesus not truly being man, just being a spiritual being, just only appearing as man. That he's actually saying that this false God that these teachers are presenting is an idol. So in a sense, John is saying false teaching is an idol. Any false presentation of the true God is idolatry when it's worshipped. So guard yourself, in a sense, against false teachers, against false teaching, against false presentations of Jesus. They're all over the place in this world. You don't have to look very far to find them, do you? You just need to go on Instagram. You just need to go on Twitter. In fact, Hillary Clinton, the daughter of Bill, the former president of the United States, tweeted this week that if Jesus was alive today, and he is, she, miss, she obviously misspoke on that one, but if he was alive today, he'd apparently be working in an abortion clinic. What's that? That's a false presentation of Jesus Christ. That's an idolatrous presentation of Jesus Christ. That's one held by a very important individual in this world. Idolatry is all over the place. So we're to guard ourselves against false teaching. But what else? Well, what else could become an idol to us? Well, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, he came up with a little list, and I'm going to use that today because it's, it's better than I could come up with, and it's, it's short. Spurgeon basically believed that you could make an idol out of almost anything. You could make an idol out of nearly anything, okay? He outlined what he thought the most common ones were, though. Do you want to hear them? Number one, yourself. Yourself. You can become an idol. And I actually think this is perhaps one of the most popular idols in the world today. All these Instagram influencers worshipping themselves. What they eat, what they do. They work out so they can stare at themselves in a the mirror. They wear clothes so they can take pictures of them, so that you can see them. The idol of self. There's many different forms of self-worship. There's a worship of your own intellect. The worship even of your own calling. Sadly, there are, there are many people who, who worship their calling. It's tempting. I believe God gave me this calling to preach to thousands of people. Okay, well, I'm not really seeing the fruit in your life right now. You know, you're caught up in this particular sin. You don't really know who Jesus truly is. But, well, pastor, that's not fair. I believe I'm called to preach. Right, okay. Well, not until I see some fruit. Not until I can hear a, an orthodox profession of who Jesus is. Well, I'm leaving your church, pastor. I'm going to go somewhere where they let me preach. That's idolatry. That's holding your calling up above God and up above his given authority in the church. Another form of idol, idolatry would be, sadly, family. This is a really tough one to think about, but family, kids, these things can become idols to us. They take the place of God. They, they prevent us in some circumstances if we, uh, if we end up going this way from, from obeying God. for fear of upsetting family members. 
a want and a need to give more time and attention to family than to the Lord, these things can easily become idols. Also, great people. There are many who find it very tempting to put people on pedestals. And that's something we need to militate against in this church because it's so easily done. To think that because somebody has a particular role, because they have a particular gifting in an area or they have an ability, that this person is to be held up in high regard and to be put so high up on a pedestal that they're above reproach. They don't need to be accountable. I love the, the old idiom that says, never meet your heroes. Why do they say that? Because they disappoint you. It's true. If you put me on a pedestal, I don't think any of you do. But let me tell you this, you'd be disappointed. You'd be disappointed. The same is true of every other man or woman in this world. You put them on a pedestal, you'd be disappointed. Don't make idols out of people especially Christian leaders. And then the final one that I'm going to mention, I think Spurgeon puts this well. One of the biggest dangers to us as Christians is what he calls the idol of the hour. The idol of the hour. What is the idol of the hour? Well, Spurgeon said that he'd lived long enough to see the idol of the hour change quite regularly. The idol of the hour is anything that the world says is good. Anything the world vaunts and says, this is the thing. This is what it's about. It's about this. And unless you believe this, you're not a good person. Brothers and sisters, the whole world, the whole world lies in the power of Satan. If the world says it's a good idea, guess what? It's probably not. It's probably not a good idea. It's probably a hellish idea. The idol of the hour is the greatest danger to the church of Jesus Christ today. Be on guard against what the world says is good. No matter how appealing and how plausible and how in accord with Christianity it might appear to be, be on guard against it. So many churches have experienced shipwreck and are currently experiencing shipwreck right now in the world because they're trying to embrace worldly ideologies, worldly theories. I don't need to name them. You know what they are. I'm hoping you know what they are. Anything that the world says is good. Anything the world says, do this and, and we'll respect you. Put this on your profile on social media and you'll be a good person and we'll applaud you. Anything like that, be on your guard against. You cannot harmonize good and evil. You cannot harmonize what is from God and what is from the devil. Love those in the world, but do as Jesus did. Hate the things of the world. Hate the things of the world. Jesus said, I don't pray for the world. I pray for those the Father has given me. Be in the world, but not of it. Sadly, so many Christians these days try and bring with them idols from the world and pop them up alongside Christ and go, there we go. 
We've got a shrine now, and we've got this particular cause and this particular ideology. And Jesus is in there too. You know, he, he's in there too. He loves it. He's happy with it. You know, if we just drape a rainbow flag over our lectern as well, and we know that's not talking about the Noahic covenant, right? Even though that's truly is what it means. If we just embrace the world's ideologies, if we just embrace what the world loves, and also let Jesus have a little bit on the party, drop his name a few times, the world will love us as well as God. No, 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 no. If the world loves you, you're doing something wrong. If the world applauds any Christian leader, be wary of that Christian leader. Do you think, do you think that Jesus' servants in this world are going to get better treatment than he did? Don't go out there trying to be hated. Don't go out there trying to be obnoxious. Love those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. But don't go out there waiting for the applause of the world. You will not get it. Unless you compromise and unless you take with you the idols the world wants you to have, you will never be applauded by the world. And don't ever seek the applause of the world. Anything that keeps you from worshipping Jesus, as he is in spirit and truth, is an idol. And it must be destroyed, brothers and sisters. It must be destroyed. We all have vulnerability in this area. It has to be said. But Jesus came, didn't he? He gave to us a new mind, a new heart. I love this in that verse there. Um, verse 20, where it says, he came to us and he gave to us understanding in order that we what? In order that we might know God. Jesus saves you out of this stuff. I love that. In fact, that I'm going to take a little segue, but the, in order to escape from the power of the devil, you need God to act. You need God to act. You can't get out of it on your own accord. You need the Son of God to come and give you understanding. And that word there again, Greek, is, is dianoia. Dianoia. It's often translated mind or understanding. But in fact, in the Greek Septuagint, which is the, the Greek Old Testament. It's an ancient document and it's the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures. Actually, that word dianoia is the word that they translate, it is the Greek word for lev, lev, okay, which is the word for heart. Lev is heart. And I've done a whole word study on this before, way back many years ago. It's super interesting. I can't get into it now, but I'd recommend you do it, okay? So what's actually, you could say, being said here is this. For the Son of God has come and has given us a heart so that we may know him who is true. You need a new heart. Do you have a new heart today? Are you born again? This is the doctrine of regeneration. You need a new heart. We know that the prophet in the Old Testament also says, I'll give you a new heart. This is God speaking. And a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what it means to be born again. Are you born again today? Are you born again? Is there a new life within you? Has Christ given you understanding? Can you say that I'm no longer under the power of Satan? I'm not loving the things of the world. 
I'm loving the things of God. Do you love the things of the world? Do you want to be applauded by the world? Or do you want God to welcome you on that day and say, well done, good and what? Good and faithful servant. Not good and talented servant, not good and prosperous servant, good and faithful servant. Being a Christian today can't be reduced to church attendance and pious behavior. It includes those things, let me tell you. If you say you're a Christian, you never come to church, I'd have reason to doubt whether you're a Christian. If you're a Christian and you behave dreadfully, we'd all have good reason to doubt, as John has said, whether you're truly a Christian. But it can't be reduced to those things. Being a Christian means you've been given something by Jesus. You've been given a new heart, a new understanding. You have a mind that knows God, that loves God, that loves His Word, and you hate the things of the world. Listen, a Christian who has no hatred of sin and evil is not a true Christian. If you don't hate the things that God hates, and yes, God hates. Yes, God hates. God hates evil. God hates sin. Read Psalm 5. Read Psalm 8. If we don't hate the things God hates and love the things God loves... What are we doing? We're not in any way protected against the devil or his schemes. Jesus came and destroyed every idol. Jesus showed every idol to be false. How did he do that? Because every idol this this world worships is either dead or dying. It's either dead or dying, but guess what? Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and he's as alive today as he was in 33 AD. He's alive today. Every idol is either dead or dying. Every generation comes and goes with its favorite ideas and philosophies and idols, its religions that it prefers, prefers above Jesus. But only Jesus has endured. Only Jesus is still here. My prayer is today that if you are finding that your way is blocked, to Christ by an idol and you know in your heart that you are trying to bring Jesus in as just another God to worship that you would let him that you would come to him today to be born again you'd allow the spirit to crush and destroy every idol in your heart Because God will not share the throne of your heart with any other thing. Let's worship God as he is. Let's be on guard against anything else. If you're listening today and you know that Jesus is just an addition to your life and is not your whole life, I pray don't delay. Don't think that you can walk away from this preach today and that God will give you 20 years to figure all of that out. It's not promised. None of us knows the day which our life will be required of us. So let's not waste time in making Jesus the only, the only God of our life, the only Lord of our heart. And let us be on our guard, brothers and sisters, against the devil and against his tricks and against dead idols. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that though sometimes your word is hard, it's always encouraging. It always has something to say to us, even now, in this century, in this time. God, sometimes your word is sobering. Sometimes it's, it challenges us in ways that we, we didn't really want to be challenged. 
But God, we pray that today that there would be a fresh zeal in the hearts of this church to not tolerate pretenders to the throne of worship in our hearts, not to tolerate false versions of Jesus, not to tolerate idolatry in our life. We also pray that there would be a genuine fortification in our hearts, that we would learn to guard ourselves better against temptation. Lord, that you'd stir up a real zeal for worship in this church, a zeal for truth in this church, and a hatred of falsehood in this church. Oh, Holy Spirit, have your way today. Have your way today. And if there are any listening to this broadcast who do not yet know Jesus, we pray, Lord God, that grace would be given for repentance. And as they hear these words, that their hearts would soften. And that they would begin to see the idols of their heart fall. As you enter in, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. I'm going to invite you to stand. And Mike's going to lead us in a moment in the final song.